Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Well, hello, listeners. Thank you for joining in. This is January 9th, 2019. I apologize. I have a science infection. I do not sound good. <laughs> so um, we are, we're still going to have our show, and we will get through this. Um, my special guest is Mark Goober, and he'll be talking about how the brain does not create consciousness. He has a really interesting background, and I'm just going to bring him on so he can talk more and I can talk less. Hello, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, hi, Denise. Thank you for having me. And I'd be happy to, to start with with my background and, and information on the book, and we can take it from there. Excellent. Okay. So my day job is in the business world. I'm a partner at a firm called Sherpa Technology Group based in Silicon Valley, and we advise companies that have important innovations on their business strategy and on their intellectual property strategy. And so I've been doing that for about nine years. And prior to that, I worked in investment banking with UBS in New York, um, working on capital raising, mergers and acquisitions and things like that. But it was during the financial crisis. So I started in 2008 and, and left in 2010. So I saw all the fun stuff that was on the news and uh, learned a lot in that period. But the, the topic of my book that you referenced, it's called An End to Upside-Down Thinking. Um, it's, it's related to consciousness in the brain, and which really doesn't have much to do with my day job or my business profession. <laughs> so it, they're like kind of separate worlds. And I never really had an intention to write a book or to study these topics until – my first inspiration was in August of 2016. I heard a podcast, a woman on a health show talked about her psychic abilities and, and abilities oh. to communicate with the deceased and working with energy to heal people. I just never heard of these things in any serious way before. So I remember that I was super interested in what she was saying, like intrigued enough to listen for uh -huh. a whole hour plus. And at the end of that show, the woman whose name is Laura Powers she mentioned that she has her own podcast called Healing Powers, where she interviews other people that have had similar personal experiences. So I, I at the time, was looking for a new podcast to listen to, so I would turn the Healing Powers podcast on during my drive from San Francisco down into the peninsula, and we can have lots of traffic here on the 101 oh, highway, so mm -hmm. <laughs> that would give me time. To, it always gives me time to listen to podcasts and to different audio things. So I I ended up listening to basically all of the episodes on healing powers from 2016 when I started all the way back to the earliest episodes that were in 2011, just wow. within a few weeks. And I, and I realized at that time 
oh my goodness, there are so many people that are independently describing a picture of reality that I've never heard of before. And that if any, any of these things that they're talking about are real, then it implies a massive shift, not only in scientific thinking, but in, in a more personal sense, like who and what we are as human beings and what reality is. So I, I then started to, to do research on my own and I started to read books and, and listen to more podcasts and see what the experts were saying. And I came across a lot of really credible research that I just was shocked to, to find out existed. And like the U S government's studies, Princeton university had a lab for almost 30 years run by the former Dean of engineering that studied these things. Um, University of Virginia's Division of Perceptual Studies at the medical school there, they've been studying these sorts of topics. So I, I researched for about a year without plans of writing a book, but it, it was all just for me to understand reality and to things, whether life has meaning, just very big questions. And I remember that during that period, I started to tell friends about this information. At first, I was very hesitant to talk to anybody about like psychic abilities and communicating sure. with the deceased and it just sounded, it was too outlandish. And I didn't really uh -huh. know the facts. I just had like bits and pieces. But over time, I started to be, become more comfortable framing it to people who have a more conventional background. And the responses I got were actually very positive, where people would say, wow, Mark, remember that dinner we had where you told us about the research you were doing? I've been thinking about those topics. And it's shifting how I think about my own life. I mean, things like that over time. Oh, that's great. And, yeah, so it was really positive feedback. And so I said, something in me said, why don't you just write a book about this and put it on paper? Because I had all this research in my head after doing a lot of research uh -huh. for a year. I mean, when I wasn't in the office, I was spending most of my time researching these topics. It was, it was an intense period. So I had all the information in my head or a lot of it. And I decided in the summer of 2017 that I would put it down on paper and hopefully make the information accessible to people so that like I was having one-on-one -on -one conversations with friends and family members and it seemed to have an impact by writing a book. I thought I would, I would be able to do that on a broader scale. So that's, that's what prompted my writing the book. And I ended up writing it pretty quickly. The actual writing of it happened over a few weekends in July of 2017 in between work. But the, the chunk of the work, the big bulk of the work came in that prior year where I was actually doing the research and huh. the book was published in uh in August of 2018, and again, it's called An End to Upside-Down Thinking. The subtitle, as, as you alluded to, it's Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. Wow. That's a, that's a great story in itself. I, yeah. just, I find it so interesting how you, you broke away from, from everything to research this particular subject and that your passion was so strong to do it. Yeah, and it was it was not easy because I, my worldview was very traditional. I, I I thought that the universe is kind of just a random occurrence, and uh -huh. the development of biological organisms like a human being was just kind of random chemical reactions that happen in the universe. And when you have enough <laughs> random reactions in this universe, Champ says you're going to end up with a human being, and that human being develops consciousness through a brain, and then when the body dies, it's over. So you don't have any memories, you don't have any feelings once you're dead, and that has implications for how you think about meaning in life. And so I kind of concluded uh -huh. that life didn't have meaning at all, and because consciousness oh, really? is over. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's what our our current education system is promoting. 
because that's True. what the what the science that is being taught is actually suggesting. So I think my old worldview was a rational one based on the evidence that I had seen. However, mm-hmm. I just didn't know about this whole other body of evidence. And that's why I think I was so drawn to it because for me, go, going from thinking life had zero meaning at all to all of a sudden, wait a second, maybe life does have meaning. Maybe there's so much more beyond um, what we're seeing with our eyes. That was a huge shift for me. Well, was there any pain involved in that shift? I mean, for like a um, week, were you rather stunned at what you were finding out? Yes. Yes, it was more than a week. It was the first few months. It was just totally disorienting. Yeah. Because I had to rethink all of the things, all of the assumptions I had about life. Uh-huh. I had to rethink them in this new context. And that was just really hard to do. And and it was also hard to accept that for decades of my life, I was thinking about things incorrectly. And I had, and most people in the world around me were of that old world view. So I, it was also just difficult on a personal level because I now had this new perspective that was not easy to convey to other people. And yet I was still living in this world of mainstream thinking. So I was just kind of concerned and confused as to how I would exist in the world with such a, an alternative outlook. Did you feel alone? Um, At first I did. Yeah. And then I, I didn't really have anyone to talk to about these things. I didn't know that there were so many people that had had these experiences. But over time, you know, I discovered that it's not so out there. Uh-huh. Yeah. You started building your own network, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So and then I started um, reading about people that have had the experiences themselves. And I just, I realized it was a community that I wasn't aware of. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Isn't it? It's pretty exciting, though. Yeah. So let's start talking a little bit about your book, where you want to start. Well, maybe we can start with the, the general, the, the the basic premise of the book, which is getting to this idea of consciousness. And consciousness, the way I think about it, is the subjective inner experience that we all have. So when I say that I am speaking to you right now, that I is what I mean by consciousness. It's like it's like our identity, our, our awareness, uh-huh. but it's not physical. Um, so I mean, it's 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 difficult because it's not a tangible thing. Yeah. Whereas like my table, I can touch my table, I can touch my leg, but I can't touch my consciousness or my awareness. And, and so there are lots of debates about, well, what is consciousness? Does consciousness even exist? I would argue that it is, it is the only thing that we can actually prove, that we are, all, we are all conscious and we all have an awareness. And everything that we're experiencing in this world outside of us is, is kind of just a, a, um, a function of our perceptions. So what I'm exploring in the book is this consciousness that we all have that seems to indisputably exist and is such a fundamental part of our lives. How does that come about? And the, the assumption that I would have made is that consciousness just comes from chemical activities in the brain, that there's complex stuff happening. And as a result of that complex stuff, consciousness just uh-huh. emerges out of our brain. And that's the mainstream perspective. What I didn't realize is that, Science actually doesn't know how that happens. There's just an assumption that, oh, well, the brain must produce consciousness simply because the brain is related to it. So like if someone uh, gets in a car accident and they damage their brain, maybe they have memory loss. Or if you part of the brain, like the part of the brain that helps you see, then maybe you have a change in your vision. So there's a very strong correlation 
between what happens in the brain and the type of conscious experience that people have. So it's often assumed that, well, it must just be the case that the brain produces consciousness. The, the potential error there, and what I think is an error, is that the assumption is that because two things are related, that one must be causing the other. And that's not necessarily okay. the case. Um, so like if, if you take an example from uh, Dr. Bernardo Castrup, he says, imagine if you have a fire and lots of firefighters show up to put out the fire. If you have a larger fire, more firefighters are showing up. There's a very strong correlation between the existence of a fire and the size of a fire and the number of firefighters that are appearing. But in those cases, we don't conclude that the firefighters are causing the fire. There's, an, there's another way to look at the relationship and the correlation. So that's the way I am looking at the brain and consciousness. So I'm not denying that the brain is, is, a, is playing a big role in consciousness, but it, I'm just arguing that it's not the producer, that the brain is, is acting more like an antenna receiver or like a filtering mechanism where there's some huh. broader consciousness that exists well beyond the body, and the brain is kind of limiting what we, are, what we perceive. So it's really a reversal in thinking. The brain's not it producing is. our conscious experience. The brain is limiting our conscious experience. So how do you get outside of that? <laughs> there are a number of instances that suggest that when the brain is actually less active, people have enriched consciousness, which would match this idea that the brain is a filter. And people, there are many people throughout the ages who have made arguments like this, including Aldous Huxley, who called the brain a reducing valve. And that was mostly in the context of, of psychedelics, where people have these ultra-real experiences where they're in, in other realms. Uh, but there are some recent studies on that which suggest that those experiences happen when the brain is actually having less functioning. So an analogy is if you imagine that consciousness is kind of like the sun and the brain and our thoughts and our feelings and emotions are all like clouds then when you remove those clouds or when you reduce the brain's functioning, then more consciousness is shining through. And maybe that's what happens with psychedelics is that we're reducing brain functioning in a certain way and then consciousness that was typically filtered out is now able to be experienced. Are there uh, any so other ways? Example. Yeah, so there are a number yeah. of examples that I, I show in the book of, of this phenomenon of reduced brain functioning associated with enriched consciousness. Um, another is the near-death experience, which is probably not the most pleasant way to achieve these states because it it's typically involves extreme physiological trauma where, for example, a person might be in cardiac arrest. And we know that when someone's in cardiac arrest, blood stops flowing to the brain after a certain amount of time, and the, so the brain shouldn't be functional. And yet in, in many cases, including uh, um, cases that are, are reported in a study, called, in a study by The Lancet, which is a prominent peer-reviewed medical journal, 18% um, of people who had near-death experiences in cardiac arrest, excuse me, 18% of people who were studied that had cardiac arrest and were resuscitated, those 18% reported a near-death experience. Whereas under the conventional view of consciousness in the brain, we would predict that 0% would be able to have any kind of lucid consciousness during such a time of physiological trauma. So, and also, I should add that in many of these cases, in the near-death experience, people report that their memories were um, clearer than usual or more logical than usual during the state when their brain should have been off. So, again, it might be an example where we've got reduced brain functioning, and yet there's a heightened consciousness. But 
I think in terms of more practical day-to-day experiences, how could someone achieve those states without taking psychedelics, without having a near-death experience? Right. It seems like, yeah, it seems like meditation or hypnosis or trance-like states, which quiet the brain, they seem to allow similar, but not as, maybe maybe not as reliably. Like with a psychedelic, it seems to happen almost automatically, whereas with meditation, it might take someone years. Wow. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah, it's a, it's a, again, it's a reversal of thinking of the brain. And uh, your listeners might be like scratching their heads for, because it, it, it just changes how you think of identity, really. Because if the right. brain is producing consciousness, then our identities, who am I? I would say, well, I'm just a body. I'm, I'm a bunch of DNA and cells, and I have a brain that makes me conscious and aware so my identity is totally tied to the physical, whereas if, if consciousness is not produced by the body, then our identity is basically that we are a consciousness that experiences the body, and that's a very different way of thinking about life. Hmm. Well, you know, I, I read uh, years and years ago about remote viewing, and the government did extensive studies on it they wanted to use it in wartime and perhaps they probably perhaps they did um what are your thoughts on that i include a chapter in my book on remote viewing and the context there is that there are um, a number of phenomena which are completely anomalous under the paradigm that the brain produces consciousness and if we think the brain if, if consciousness is just confined to our body then we could never have a conscious experience of something that is non-local to us, that is far away. And yet there are a number of examples that I include where consciousness does seem to exist in a non-local place. And remote viewing is one example of that. And as you mentioned, the U.S. government ran a a program for more than 20 years where they used these psychic spies to do remote viewing. And the term remote viewing is also kind of like clairvoyance. It's the ability to perceive or see something even though your eyes are not there to see it. So the thing is far away and yet you're able to perceive what's there. So it's like, it's almost like people are able to access something that's far away from them. And some people are very, it's totally wild, but the U S government has actually released documents, uh, documents that used to be classified that say very explicitly remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. And I include this in chapter four of my book, those exact quotes. So wow. I think that's pretty compelling. And also when you combine it with the research that was done um, out of the Stanford Research Institute. So, for example, Russell Targ was a laser physicist who ran the program where the, where the U.S. government had these psychic spies. He's written tons of stuff on this. He wrote a book more recently called The Reality of ESP, where he chronicled the remote viewing studies that were done. Um, and when you, when you look at the actual remote viewers themselves who were in the programs, and now they're speaking publicly about it, they all talk about what was done. Um, former U.S. President James Carter confirmed that remote viewers were used to find a downed Russian bomber that was lost in an African jungle. Previously, huh. they couldn't find it, and they used remote viewers to locate this thing. So it's an example to me where you have many independent areas uh, that seem to be pretty credible, all pointing to the same thing. 
And if we recontextualize consciousness as not being confined to the brain or to the body, then we can actually rationalize that these things could be real. Because if consciousness isn't produced by the body, then these phenomena like remote viewing, they're not paranormal. They're what you would predict to be true. Huh. So would you say in one sense that there really isn't death? Only of the physical body? That's how I see it now. I, I see death, that what we typically call death, where the body dies, as being a transition of consciousness. Whoa. And where do, where do we go? <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? Because we can't, we can't really know until we're not living in the physical body anymore. Like the near-death experience is, is close because uh-huh. the person is clinically dead, but they still come back into their bodies. They're not fully dead. Yeah, that's and right. There are, lots of, there are lots of debates about, well, maybe the near-death experience is just a hallucination. I have a whole chapter on the near-death experience and examine it from this lens, and I haven't seen a compelling argument to suggest that, that a, a brain – that the brain could be producing these experiences because the brain is, is so impaired or it's, it's fully off. And uh-huh. what happens in some cases, yeah, so like you wouldn't expect that. You would expect the need for a fully functional brain to have such clear thoughts where people talk about they, they, they're like filled with unconditional love and sometimes they see deceased loved ones. And then to me, this is the most compelling one, is they'll, they'll observe things that happen in the room. And sometimes from the vantage point, of being above their body. It's known as an out-of-body right. experience. Uh-huh. So what they report is they'll, they'll come back into their body after being resuscitated, and they'll talk about something that happened in the room from this other vantage point. And yet what they are talking about happened during the time that their brain should have been totally non-functional. It's, oh. known, as a veridic, it's known as a veridical out-of-body experience. Oh so if you think about that in the context. Yeah, it, it, this is big. If you think about this in the oh. context of, well, maybe the, the near-death experience is a hallucination, well, if they're having a, an out-of-body experience that's verified as being accurate, then that's not a hallucination. Exactly. Huh. Could possibly be. Right. My gosh. Yep. It really... Well, there are a few other, there are few other areas, though, that I explore with regard to uh, the, the possible survival of consciousness beyond the body. And okay. again, I, I'm not sure we, we can know for sure what happens when the physical body dies. We, we have glimpses from the near-death experience, and there's one other sure. path that I want to mention. It's called the life review, where people experience, they report experiencing their whole life in a flash, where they're like judging themselves for how they acted towards people during their lives and reliving the scenes. But in some cases, they experience the life review through the eyes of the people that they affected. Oh my gosh. And and right, so they're feeling the emotions and especially the negative ones seem to stick with people and they they're they're saying, "Oh my goodness, they come back in their body and many people are forever changed where uh-huh. they they are less materialistic, they often change their jobs, sometimes people get divorced because it's a total shift in priorities after people have this experience of of having a new identity and then seeing something about the meaning of life which seems to be more about the treatment of others rather than purely material gains. And that can be yes. a transformative thing. Yeah. Um, so the other areas that I wanted to mention, which, which moved to this point of, of the potential survival of consciousness. One is the study of mediumship and mediumship refers to 
the idea that some people, or I would argue all people, have an ability to communicate with the deceased, but some seem to be very talented at it. And uh, recently, the Windbridge Research Center has run um, studies on mediums in under controlled settings. So five levels of blinding where the medium, who's the person claiming to be able to communicate with the deceased, is um, on the phone with the researcher. And the researcher only gives the medium the first name of the deceased person. The medium doesn't even know whose relative this is. They just are getting information about this person. And in two peer-reviewed journal papers that have been published, uh, it seems that the mediums are able to get information about the deceased person beyond what chance would predict using statistics. And again, it's just over the phone with all, all they get is the first name. Interesting. It's, it needs to be studied further, but it's, it's interesting because mediums have been reported throughout the ages. And I I reference a few famous cases from the 1800s where Uh William James, for example, he's a famous psychologist there was a medium named Mrs. Piper that he studied extensively, and he, he concluded that she was able to get information about the deceased through means that he could not understand, that he, he was ruling out things like fraud and, and other more conventional explanations. So this has been reported for a while, and now we're just starting to see really rigor, rigorously controlled studies that at least some journals are accepting as, as credible science. So I think that's, again, this is another world-changing finding, if that's really true, that someone can get information about a deceased person just by knowing the first name and not even speaking to the relative of that person. So they can't, we can't claim that they're getting like cues from the deceased person, like emotional cues. It's the researcher who's on the phone who just gives the first name. Well, it just goes to show you how interconnected we are. I agree with you. And that's, that's how I look at things now in terms of reality. Not only uh-huh. does consciousness not come from the brain, but I, I view consciousness as being the basis of all existence and that we're interconnected as part of that same consciousness. So to quote Erwin uh, Schrodinger, who is a, a famous Nobel Prize winning physicist, he said, in truth, there's only one mind. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I just wish we'd all be kinder. I, well, I think that's a great point, and, and that's what the implications kind of move towards. If we're interconnected, then things like kindness and altruism, they become fully rational behaviors. Because if we're connected as the same consciousness, then then it's only rational to treat others well, because then you're kind of just helping yourself through that right. act. Um, and I want to give another analogy that might be helpful to your listeners, which is okay. uh, also from Bernardo Castro, who also kind of has this framework of reality where consciousness is primary. He says, imagine that reality is like a stream of water where water represents consciousness. Each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream. So we're made of water, i.e. consciousness, but we have these kind of delineations that separate us. So it feels like we're separate and we're in our own little whirlpools, but we're connected as part of the same stream. Wow. I'm rarely speechless, but it's really interesting. <laughs> but, but again, this model would predict that consciousness survives when the body dies. It's sort of like when the whirlpool dissolves. Yes. Consciousness transitioning into a new form, but it's not leaving the stream. 
Oh, my word. Why do you suppose in our society today, it just seems like everything's becoming so disjointed um, and negative? Yes. I, I and I can't figure it out. Why? Why is this happening now? To me, it, it all stems from a misunderstanding of reality. That, yeah. that there is the pervasive belief in separation. And it's an assumption that often is not spoken about because it just seems like we're separate. That's what our eyes show us. I'm standing here. Someone else is standing over there. That tree is over there. And we don't see the interconnectivity. Um, but okay. I think this new paradigm of reality that, that puts consciousness in a new place where consciousness is fundamental rather than just a random byproduct of, of physical matter through our brain, that brings us into a different picture of reality. And I think if as a society or many people in society, we can start to adapt to what science yes. is suggesting, then, then I think behaviors will become less negative because it will be irrational to, to have that go. negativity. And it's really getting the scientific community on board because that's what separates us now. It really is. It really is because that, the scientific community influences and informs our education system. And the education system is in, informing a lot of so much in the world. So what I've discovered in my research is that there's extreme controversy in these areas. And I think it's one of the reasons I felt so compelled to put all the evidence in one place because there are certain scientists that are extremely dismissive of any results that come about and there, um, and there will be some people who say there's no evidence for these phenomena at all. And what I found is that many of the people that say this are really smart scientists, but they haven't actually looked at the evidence. They haven't taken oh. the time to look at the studies and to see the accumulated stuff. So when I had, why would they the make statements? There, why would they make statements like that? considering what it is they do for a living, you know, without, I think it, <laughs> how, how can you make I, a statement without having looked at the evidence? Yes. I think it's an unscientific approach, which is ironic because many of the, these people are scientists. So I, I think there's, it, it's similar to what Galileo faced when he had all yes. of the evidence in the telescope that the earth was not the center of the solar system. Um, uh -huh. and there were clergymen that didn't want to look in the telescope to see the evidence, because if they did, they might have had to shift their worldview. There you go. That's the whole thing. That's it. Yes. And well, my hope is that by putting all this evidence in one place, I mean, most of the book, and I tried to write it as, as, as for a mainstream audience, for someone who's not a scientist, but it's exactly a lot of scientific evidence. So well, you did a great is, job doing well, that. Well, thank you. Thank you. But I mean, if you can disprove all of the studies that I reference and all the U.S. government programs and everything, then, okay, maybe that there's not anything here. But to me, it becomes very difficult without any reason to do it to be able to shoot down all of the evidence. And that's uh -huh. why I think the case is strong. It's because of the amount, the amount and the diversity of evidence from so many important areas. Well, my view with the scientific community is that most of them are funded. You know, they go out and they get their grants to do their research, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not really in a position to shift the world view on what it is they're looking into. And that all goes to materialism. It all goes to making a living. It's, 
you know, it's kind of this vicious circle. And we, we don't need to just apply that to scientists. I mean, we can apply it to all kinds of different, you know, fields. And that's why it's so difficult to change a person's worldview. Absolutely. Yes. And, and the, the topic of funding in general is a really important one because if we want more results on things like mediumship or near-death experiences, if we want to have more peer-reviewed journal papers, someone has to fund those studies. And that means there need to be people that are willing to not fund the traditional stuff quite as much and put money into uh-huh. these new areas. And yet at the same time, if we have scientists who are saying all of that is nonsense, it's just tougher to get funding. Of course. Now, you, you yourself are in a unique position because you know where the money is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, I can only assume you're working on this. <laughs> and I, it's something I mentioned in the book, and I'm hoping that I actually mentioned the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I gave a hypothetical that if you imagine they, they donated a, a, a tiny fraction 1%. Of, yeah. their, right, of their large foundation, that would really ratchet things up. I mean, the, the field of, of called consciousness in this way, it, it's really hard for the scientists to get funding, and it slows things down. Sure, sure. But, you know, again, it has to do with, you know, control, Right controlling the population <laughs> it'd be very interesting if if uh, large groups of our population started thinking you know they had that medium shift um, they and uh, they understood it they um, everything that you talk about in your book we need huge groups of people I mean huge groups to change our society. You may I agree. Right. You may not. I don't I know. Think, I think, well, I, I, I think we need a, it needs to be kind of a, a cultural shift in thinking and no one living yeah. has been through a, a, such a big shift in thinking before. I mean, like the yeah. closest thing was really the, the, the recognition that the earth is not the center of the solar system. And I can only imagine what it was like to live at that time. Where wait, uh-huh. remember, could you imagine if you thought the Earth was the center of everything and then realized it wasn't? That's just a, a major paradigm shift in, yeah. in thinking yeah. about uh, their position in the universe. To me, this is even bigger because it's it's not an external shift; it's a shift in our identity. Exactly, exactly. It's how it's it's a programming. It's how we've been programmed from the day we stepped into the schoolroom. From well, from the right. day we were born. Actually, it actually starts at birth, and your parents. So yeah, it's just the traditional way of thinking, and it's it's easy to go along with that, unless exposed to this kind of material, or unless you have a personal experience, like a near death experience. Without yeah. one of those, it is hard to make that shift. Well, you know, it's it's like with anything in life. If you haven't actually experienced it yourself, it's hard to have empathy. You might say to somebody, I'm really sorry that happened to you or whatever, but you don't really have the empathy because you didn't have the actual experience. That's one of the big challenges that comes about, especially with near-death experiences, that when people come back from it, they often say that the experience is ineffable, meaning it's difficult with human language to describe what they had, what what happened to them. So when you're speaking with a doctor, 
who's never had the experience and you can't really communicate in words what was going on, there's just automatically a disconnect. Yep. And that's where they must feel very alone. Yeah, I think they have historically, but fortunately there's more and more research and people are, are able to read books about the research and hopefully uh-huh. feel less alone. And it's another, another reason that I, and podcasts, they can listen to it. Um, <laughs> Forgot but you started. I, that's where I started. It was, it was hearing it on podcasts and it's, it, it, it helps with technology, but I found with my book in the, just a few months that it's been out that many people have found it to be very validating. People who have had these experiences in meditation or near death experience or something like that, where they can use the book now as kind of a, a reference point for other people that have never had those experiences to say, oh. look, this is all the evidence that backs up my experience. What a gift you've given to them. Truly. I mean, it's a gift you're giving to the world, but I mean, you know, to, to actually zero in on, on people specifically is, is a pretty wonderful thing you've done. You know that, don't you? Well, I appreciate that. I, I felt a, a very strong uh, urge to write the book for a lot of the reasons we've discussed, and it felt yeah. like it needed to happen and happen quickly. Yeah, well, it definitely did. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? You have our full attention. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we, we've only scratched the surface of the evidence. I'll talk maybe about the research at the University of Virginia, and I'll mention that because, again, it's such a credible place. Um, and they've been studying things like near-death experiences and altered states of consciousness. But I have a chapter in the book on children who have memories of a previous life. Oh, Those are wow. really fascinating because these are usually children between the ages of two and five years old who – are spontaneously describing in vivid detail a life that's not theirs. And in some cases, again, this is 50 years worth of research at the University of Virginia, over 2,500 cases. Okay. In some cases, the, the researchers can find the person that the child is describing. Oh, and no. And the details are oh, very specific. Yeah. Are they living or it's, are they dead? They're dead. They're dead. And so typically the child is describing how, how the person died. So there was oh. one case, a boy named James, who uh, talked about dying in a plane crash in World War II and had very specific details about it. And in fact, the researchers at UVA were able to find a person that died in this exact manner, and it was a person in a single plane. So it's like it's really hard to imagine that some of these could have been just made up. And when you take all the evidence together, uh, that's what's compelling. Huh. Well, there goes that interconnectivity again, right? Yes. It's like a one whirlpool stops being a whirlpool, dissolves into the stream, and then forms into a new whirlpool almost. Makes you uh, want to think that we really know everything about everybody. <laughs> we just don't <laughs> – the brain just doesn't allow us to, to <laughs> realize it. <laughs> That's a really good point because it this does imply that – if we are just a stream of consciousness and have had other experiences, there's almost a built-in amnesia that we're all experiencing. There's some there block go. that we're having to knowledge, knowledge and past information. Why is that there? And it raises all kinds of questions about just how life works. When we talked earlier about 
meditation could get you there a little bit with this, um, uh, you know, this, this whole shift, uh, mind shift. And you, you said it could take a matter of years. Why is that versus a psychedelic that would be right away? I don't think it's well understood, but it, med- well, I think it depends on the case. I've, I have heard of people who will just spontaneously have, uh, have one of these experiences in meditation. And I, I write okay. about some examples of this in my book where it just happens unannounced where okay. they are in an altered state. And what they describe is similar to the near death experience or the psychedelic where it's unconditional love. People feel like they're, they're at one with everything. And it, it might just be kind of a training of the brain to remove the clouds, remove the chatter in the mind that is clouding out this, these rays of consciousness that are always there. And for some people, those clouds might be stronger than others. Okay. So there's no knowing how long it could take if no, you pursue no. meditation. From what, I, from what I've seen, it can be variable. And there are people, especially in Eastern cultures, for a long time, we hear of people kind of devoting their lives to meditation and trying to achieve these states. Well, what do monks do? It's very similar from my limited understanding, though, is that it, it's very much about meditation. And there are okay. other things like kind of um, removing attachments to the world because uh-huh. attachments can lead to suffering. If you have an attachment to, I need this to happen, I need to get this job, otherwise I'm going to be upset, then any attachment uh-huh. we have or any, any attachment we have to something we want or don't want, that creates a potential to be upset. And in some of the Eastern cultures, there's uh, a thinking that if we, if we get rid of the attachments to the world, then we can alleviate some of the suffering and meditation can help with that. So have you personally taken this um, to a deeper level? I have, have I have tried many different types of, I've experimented with different types of meditation and breathing. I have not experimented with psychedelics personally, although I've researched them a lot. And I haven't had a near-death experience, um, so I haven't achieved. I haven't had one of those those states that that in an instant transforms someone. But I have had a number of experiences with intuition or like knowing something is going to happen and then it happens, where there are kind yes. of crazy coincidences and it's hard to reason that that it was just a chance occurrence. And right. so those are those are mystical in a more subtle way. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had many many of those, and there's there's times where. It happens more frequently than other times, and it could very well be because I'm not as clouded in my thinking, you know, because yeah. I think emotions have a lot to do with it. So if you're pretty even keel and there isn't anything going on and the world is looking pretty rosy, I think that's when it happens more often. Well, I will say this just anecdotally from different people that have either spoken to me about these topics or have started reading the book is that the exposure to this material um, seems to be able to like cause people to have some of those experiences more often, whether they're just like coincidences or kind of a knowing that something will happen and whether uh-huh. that's just a heightened, heightened awareness about it, or if there's something else going on where by, by opening up intellectually to these things, maybe that helps with the clouding and removing some of the clouds. I don't know. It could, it could, could very well be. I mean, we always talk about being open-minded or closed-minded. Yeah, and there's plenty, plenty of people with both of those things, types of things. Um, so, yeah, could very well be. Well, you know, it's been a delight talking with you. 
I'm so glad. Well, thank you so much. You wrote this, and I'm so glad you came on our show. And uh, why don't you tell the listeners where they can purchase the book and any other information that they, you know, you would like to impart with them? Sure. So my website is just my name. It's m a r k g o b e r dot com. It has more information on my book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, which is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, many other bookstores. Um, yeah, I think that my website is a good place to start, but also the social media. All right. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Mark Goober. It's been a delight. And I apologize for my voice. <laughs> no problem at all. Thank you for having me, and I hope you feel better. Oh, I will. All right. Well, uh, until next time, thank you for joining us. We re- all really appreciate it. Bye-bye for now. All right, listeners, that wraps up our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll be back next Wednesday, same time, same place, with another glorious guest. Please be well. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? <laughs>